great. And, and as I said at the end, when we come to ministry, we'd love to take some more time and gather around you guys to do that properly. Um, so we are going to continue with our series that we've been going for a couple of weeks now. If you can sit my first slide. Oh, you've done it already. Thank you. Emotionally healthy spirituality. I'm just getting over a bit of a sore throat, so hopefully you can hear me all right. Um, oh, sorry. Should I just do that again? Sorry. That's the sort of thing my wife would tell me off for if she got the chance. Um, so this is a series that we've been doing based on this amazing book called Emotional, um, Emotionally Spirit. What's it called? Emotion- Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. The series brings together these two concepts. Oh, hello. Oh, that wasn't meant to happen. Okay. Oh, hello. Oh. Right. Now I'm confused. Now I'm confused. Do you know what? Can you give these to the guys on the desk? I think those are the ones that were meant to have. If any of those are on there, put them up. And if they're not, don't worry about it. Okay? Is that all right? Um, you could sum this series up with one line. And it's this. It's this. It's impossible to remain spiritually mature whilst emotionally immature. That's a pretty much a good... Let me say that again. It's impossible to be mature spiritually whilst not being mature emotionally. That's kind of a summary in one line of this series. And um, much as we'd like to think so, that it's possible to be one without the other, it just isn't. And so last week we talked about how well we know ourselves and how the way that we know ourselves has a direct impact on the way that we know God. We talked about emotional intelligence and how we can recognize and express the emotions that we have. We talked about the kind of masks that we hide behind, performance, possessions, and popularity. And there was an invitation to do as Jesus did, which was to become our true, authentic selves. To learn to express the, really the emotions appropriately, but from a real place, to express our emotions and trust that knowing who we are, okay, and, and that God is with us, and that will be enough. And if you missed either of those talks, you can listen again on our website, um, and I would strongly encourage you to do that. We do have some sheets. Terry and perhaps a couple of others. Chris, can you just help out? We've got some sheets which I'd love to give you today. I, I kind of put, when we're doing a series like this with a fair bit of information on it, we tend to produce these handouts just so you don't have to sort of try and remember everything. You may want to scribble notes on them as well, but even if you don't, this will just help you remember some of what we're talking about today. And so today's talk is called Going Back to Go Forward. No, that's not it. Okay, I'm so sorry. Forget what I'm, I'm going to put that down. It's called Going Back to Go Forward. Okay, look at that. Do you know who that is? That's me, by the way. Um, I'm just going to come to that next. Today's talk is called Going Back to Go Forwards or Breaking the Power of the Past. You see, for each of us, God chose to birth us into a family at a certain time, at a certain place, in a certain part of the world. Okay, for me, that happened to be in 1969 in Gravesend in Kent, and I was part of the Hemming family. And the choice that God has made, the family that he put each of us in, has brought us an incredible blessing. It brings opportunities. It brings gifts as we grow up. But it also, I think it's fair to say, means that we have a certain amount of what I best call emotional baggage that comes with our family. You see, as we grew up, for some of us, we had a lot of baggage that we brought from our family. There was a, for some of us, we had a small amount. For some of us, we had a massive amount. For some of us, it's a bit like carrying an enormous rucksack through 
How are we doing? Okay, we're there. Yes! Well done, guys. Big up the team. Brilliant job, guys. For some of us, okay, it's like we're carrying a little bit of emotional baggage through from our family, but for others of us, it's like that. The load was minimal, or for others, it turned out to be a heavy load to carry. Some of us are so accustomed to walking with baggage the whole time that we can't imagine living any other way. In fact, as we were praying this morning, I had this picture in my mind of what I thought God wanted to do. And for some of us, God simply wanted to come along and just lift the rucksack off our backs. And it's as simple as just going, yeah, just take the straps off, let it go. For some of us, we don't even want to do that. We kind of, you see that the only way to hold a pack like that really, okay, is to hold it like this with your hands. And sometimes that's what we want to do with our stuff. We just want to keep hold of it because it kind of, it's what we've got used to. It makes us feel better. So emotionally healthy spirituality means dealing with reality, not denying, not pretending. It's about being honest about who we are, about being honest about how our past has affected us, okay, but not spending our life being miserable about it. True spirituality frees us to live joyfully in the now, not caring about the weight of our past. So in this book, Scazzaro, the writer of this book, cites this couple, a story about a couple in his church who were having some marriage issues. And the wife says, said that she just wasn't sure if she loved her husband anymore. They've been married 10 years plus, they've got kids, they're active in the church. Um, the guy had been a pastor, I think, for some of the time. Um, she said she, didn't, she wasn't sure if she, wanted, if she loved her husband anymore. Or she wanted to be with him anymore. And her main complaint was about him being distant and unemotional and unavailable and unintimate. About his lack of involvement with the children. This guy honestly had no idea what to do. And Scazzaro reflected on the conversation. I just want to, I won't read you the details, but I want to read you the author's reflections. Um, He's the pastor here. He said, both Frank and Maria were raised in Christian homes. They know the Bible. For years, they've worshipped God and listened to thousands of sermons. They've attended small groups faithfully and served on their church worship team. They've gone away on Christian marriage retreats and attended leadership conferences, and yet they are miserable. Why? Why hasn't a lifetime of spirituality in the church, surrounded by the truth of Jesus, transformed deeply their inner lives and their marriage? Where is the rich, abundant fruit of a life well-lived in God? Why are so many of us living lives with deeply entrenched parts of us, apparently untouched by the power and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ? Scazzaro kind of asked that very point. I think it's a great question. And he sort of goes on to say, this is why I've written this book. Hopefully the book begins to answer some of the question why. And that's also why we're doing this series. Many of you have encouraged me over the last couple of weeks and said that you're finding this material very thought-provoking and very helpful. Nobody has disencouraged me, disencouraged me yet. If you're thinking of doing that, maybe think about it again. But um, <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just thrilled. I'm, I'm thrilled that so many people seem to be connecting with this material. And Scazzara talks about the need to go backwards, sorry, before you go forwards, go backwards to go forwards to understand these two basic truths. There's a little quote from his book here. He said, there are two key things we need to know about this. Number one, the blessings and sins of our families go back two or three generations, profoundly impact who we are today. And number two, discipleship requires putting off those sinful patterns of our family of origin and relearning how to do life God's way and in God's family. You see, when the Bible 
talks about family. We're not just talking about those who live in the same house as us. We're not just talking about our immediate relatives. The Bible's definition of family extends over three and four generations. That means in a biblical sense, your family is all your brothers, sisters, uncles, aunties, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-uncles, great-aunties, and any significant others. Going back over 100 years, we are all affected by events through our lives, but this group is the most powerful and influential group that you will ever belong to. Even if you left home in your teens or your early 20s, determined to break free from your upbringing, most of us will find that the way our family did life will follow us into the next generation. Things that happen in one generation often repeat in the next. It's common to see patterns of, for example, um, divorce, alcoholism, addictive behavior, sibling rivalry, sexual abuse, mistrust of authority, or just the inability to sustain stable relationships. It's really common to see those patterns repeat over generation and generation. Now, over the last couple of weeks, I've spoken about my family quite openly um, and about my own journey in this. I've told you about how my parents, for example, um, weren't able to give me everything I felt I needed in the area of emotional health and spirituality. It's not appropriate for me to go into too many details about this, about what this looked like. But I have sought to understand and try to understand how my mum and dad were and why they were the way that they were. And inevitably, as I reflect on what I know about them and what I know about their parents and how they did business in their family in terms of their emotions and their spirituality, then what I've deduced from this conversation, what I've deduced from the conversations I did have with my parents about their upbringing is that the pattern that I observed didn't originate with them. And that actually it goes back further. Some of what I, what I experienced was a result of dysfunction in previous generations that my parents, and who knows, possibly even their parents, experienced. So for example, my grandfather, who died when I was about 13, he was a, he was a great guy. He was a plumber and a heating engineer, a very practical man. And, um, and also an active member of his church. He was part of the, the team that helped to run the church. They called, it the, they called him a deacon, but he was the church treasurer. And also he sang in the church choir, which meant that he could be busy in the evenings or at the weekends. And then because he was a plumber, he was really good at fixing people's broken pipes and broken heating systems. And so he was often called out after hours to do that. You know, and so he seemed to have this wonderful reputation in the community. He was a wonderful man. People looked up to him and, and liked him and he was so helpful. And yet my dad has a memory of just being a child and thinking, I never got to see my dad because he was always out helping other people or he was always out at the church. My dad felt the loss of that and the lack of emotional connection. And you know, it's really good to serve others. It's a really godly thing to do but it's easy to get it out of balance. And obviously that had an impact on my dad and his own emotional health. And so in turn, I saw a similar pattern in my dad's life. When I was a kid, he was busy and he was engaged in the life of his church. He was the church secretary actually, and he helped to lead the youth group. I don't really remember thinking as a kid, my dad is always out. I don't remember that. That wasn't a thing that I remember, but we just, we didn't always connect very well. And as I grew, there was an emotional distance between us. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, my dad had the foresight later in his life to observe this and to kind of try and warn me against it. He, because he'd worked through some of his own emotional health issues by then, he found healing and freedom in what had happened to him. And I remember a specific conversation when our Becky was very little and he came up to me and he said, you know, um, I'm just concerned about parenting because um, 
I didn't do it very well and I don't want you to observe and copy the way I did it. You know, he, he, he admitted to me, he said that when, he was, when I was younger, he felt that he'd been just too busy and kind of needing to prove himself in the church and in the community and therefore hadn't been as involved in our upbringing as he would have liked to have been. And that's a pretty honest thing for him to come and say. And he could see that I was also, you know, actively involved in a church and he didn't want to see that pattern repeating itself, which is really gracious of him. And I was, I was more aware of my own upbringing by then. And Joe and I had seen other families where we observed parents and children really seeming to connect positively. And we'd already observed that. We talked about that and what that could look like. And we got some great role models. And I already, already knew that I wanted that for my own family. But I could see the journey my dad had been on. And I was just grateful for his courage and his honesty. And I really benefited from what he was able to give me. So I'm not trying to judge anyone here. I'm incredibly grateful for what my parents and grandparents gave to me, what they did for me. They were great people, all of whom were trying to follow God and were giving out of what they had. I have no idea what they received from their previous generations. I can't comment on that. But I also can't deny that the impact that some of that emotional distance had on my parents also in turn had an impact on me. And it seems like the best thing I can do is to acknowledge that and bring it to Jesus And I've done that on loads of occasions, actually. And I'm determined to break the power of any generational patterns and be sure that as I live my own life, I do it in as healthy way as possible for my own benefit and for the benefit of everybody around me. So for my family and particularly so that I don't pass bad bad habits and bad patterns or destructive patterns or unhelpful patterns on to the next generation, to my own kids or to anyone else I might have influence over. You know, you look at this stuff in the Bible and it's not clear whether this stuff is nature or nurture. It's not clear whether it's to do with um, genetics or parenting. You know, that's a debate that will run. But the Bible does have something to say about this. In Deuteronomy 5 and verse 8, it's the context of this is in the context of God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. And he says, you know, I don't want you to make yourself an image. Okay, as in another type of God, any kind of idol or statue God is talking about. And I don't want you to bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, I'm a jealous God. And then this is the bit I want to focus on. He says, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. That feels like quite a harsh verse, doesn't it? From what it sounds like, God is saying, he will punish children for the sins of their parents. He does qualify this by saying, for those who hate me. There are long-term consequences for not living God's way. And they don't just happen in our lifetime. And of course, the reverse is true as well. There are generational blessings for those who do live in God's way. There is a pattern present, but the pattern can be broken through repentance. Jesus We know later that Jesus comes on the cross to deal with all of that stuff. But it does seem that for those who turn their back on God or those who don't try and live God's way, there is an impact of what we do and how we live. And at the start of the Old Testament, we read about Abraham, who was chosen by God to bring blessings to the many generations that would come after him. Because of his obedience, God did pass down blessings from Abraham to his son Isaac, to his son Jacob, and to his sons Joseph and all his brothers. This is the, for those of you who like Marvel comics, this is the origin story of God's people. 
This is the origin story of the Jewish nation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all their families and all their extended families. And at the same time as generational blessings are being passed down this family, there are also patterns of sin and brokenness that are transmitted through the generations. We can read, I'm not gonna, I haven't got time to go into all the stories, but if you know any of this, you'll know that in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's family, every one of them saw patterns of lying, saw patterns of favoritism, saw patterns of sibling separation where brothers were just disconnected from each other and saw really, really poor patterns of intimacy between husband and wife. So Abraham lied twice about his wife, Sarah. Isaac and Rebecca's marriage was characterized by lies. Jacob lied to almost everyone. In fact, his name means the deceiver. And 10 of Jacob's children lied about Joseph's death. They faked a funeral and kept a family secret going for over a decade. So yes, there's generational blessings, but yes, there's also patterns of destruction that are going down the generations. Favoritism we can read about. Abraham favored one son over another. Isaac favored one son over and over. Jacob favored Joseph. You all know the story about Joseph, right? I mean, Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote a musical about it, so everybody knows that story. But, you know, there he was with his precious coat. Why did he have that coat? Because his father favored him and his brother over the rest of the brothers. There's favoritism going on in each generation. There's brothers experiencing separation from each other in each generation. Isaac and Ishmael, Abraham's sons, were cut off. Jacob and Esau fled. One one fled from the other and they were cut off for, for years and years. Joseph cut off. And again, poor intimacy. The marriage, these weren't great marriages. You know, Abraham had been told by God that he was going to have a son by Sarah. And Sarah didn't really believe it was possible. So she sent him off to sleep with the the servant girl. You know, Isaac and Rebecca had a terrible relationship. And uh, Jacob, again, had plenty of, lots of wives, lots of servants, lots lots of mistresses. What about your family? See, it's there in the Bible, okay? It's very real, this stuff. It's often only as we grow older that we begin to realize what kind of a deep influence our own family of origin had on us. Each of our family members or the people who raised us since childhood will have imprinted certain ways of behaving and thinking into us. You could almost describe these patterns of thinking or behaving as our very own set of commandments. In other words, there are rules that we live by. You will have your Ten Commandments of your family. Some of them will be spoken and explicit. Some of them just won't be, but they're there. Influencing beliefs and values and actions, whether consciously or subconsciously, many of these things have been hardwired into our DNA. And unless there's some intervention of God, we are simply going to continue to bring this pain and these habits and this brokenness and these expectations into all our closest relationships as adults. So I've reproduced a chapter from the book. You can't see it very well on here, but it is on your page there. And this is uh, just an example of Ten Commandments of Family. Okay, maybe these were some of the rules in your family. Maybe on money, your family rule was that money is the best source of security. That the more money you have, the more important you are. Okay, look at conflict. Maybe in your family, the rule was, Avoid conflict at all costs. Or maybe the opposite. Loud, angry, constant fighting is normal. And you can go down all of that. And there's all sorts of rules that will have been expressed in your family. Okay, what, how, how did your family deal with grief and loss? 
Was sadness and tears seen as a sign of weakness? Were we supposed to just kind of get over it and move on? This isn't an exhaustive list, by the way, either. You could easily add to it. There will be messages that we all received about parenting, about gender roles, about marriage and singleness, about physical affection and touch. How did your family view God? How did your family view other churches or other faiths? It's really essential to reflect on the messages that have been handed down to us, the stuff that our family have imprinted on us, and submit them to Jesus and his truth. There's one classic commandment that many of us will be familiar with, and it's this one. It's it's classic, and it's deadly, and it's this. You must achieve to be loved. For some of us, we feel that we had to achieve at sports, or at schoolwork, or in our community, or in our church, or in music, or in whatever hobby we had, just to feel of any worth or value. And so we find ourselves struggling with achievement addiction, constantly feeling inferior to other people, constantly trying to measure our own worth or value against others and what they can do. Many of us know the experience of being approved for what we do. I'm sure that less of us know the experience of being loved for who we are. So for Joe and I in our own parenting, this is one of the things we've tried to drill into our kids that while we always want them to give their best and to do their best in everything they do, that has never been and will never be a condition of our love for them. They're loved anyway. Have a look at the list. Think about your own family's commandments. Maybe take a moment just to look at that. Take, take, take 30 seconds now. How have your own family's commandments impacted on you and your relationships? If you feel really comfortable, you could tell the person next to you. But I'm not going to make you. Remember that picture I shared at the beginning? That some of us are carrying big baggage around. Let me say this. Here's a little bit of truth. Your family of origin does not have to determine your future. That's biblical truth. What you may have experienced before does not have to be your destiny. The New Testament makes it clear that for those who have chosen to follow Jesus, we have been adopted into the family of God. It's a radical new beginning. It's a spiritual rebirth into a much larger family. You know, Jesus always respected his birth parents. And even on the cross, he entrusted the care of his mother into his friend John. But Jesus was also clear that people's first loyalty was not to their biological family, but to God. There's a couple of verses on your sheet about that. Following Jesus means putting off the sinful patterns and habits which we have acquired from our families of origin and being transformed to live freely as members of Jesus' family. God intends that we would grow into mature men and women of Christ. We become more and more transformed by the presence of God's Holy Spirit. Yes, we honor our parents. Yes, We honor our culture and our history, but we obey God first and foremost. And so every one of us has to take the time to look at what we've grown up with, to look at the brokenness and sin and reflect on our lives and our past, looking honestly beneath the surface and then bringing our pain to God and making choices to live and act differently. Trusting in in our amazing Father, I think, He has the best parenting skills that I've ever used. And our church is intended to be a community 
where people follow Jesus and are set free. The way we live and the way we act towards one another should reflect that. We need to be, guys, the most dynamic, the most welcoming, the most loving, the kindest, the friendliest group of people that any one of us has ever met. If we're not that yet, that's what I'm heading towards. That every single, the experience of every single person who ever gets contacts anybody from this church ever co- understands that. That we're passionate disciples of Jesus, living radical lives of generosity and service and love. That we lay our lives down for our friends and connect with the Spirit of God every day. That can be really hard to do when you're weighed down by the habits and patterns that our own families have imprinted on us. So just as I finish, I want to look at the example of Joseph. Joseph, who I've already talked about, was a great, provides, his, the story of Joseph provides a great model of how to go back to go forward. About a quarter of the book of Genesis is about Joseph, who grew up from pretty tough beginning into an emotionally and spiritually mature adult who lived out the unique destiny that God had called him to, despite having this complex and broken and destructive, dysfunctional family start. Now, in case you don't know the Angelo Weather musical, I've just put a few main points of the story down there. You can read it all for yourselves in in Genesis 37. Age 17, Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons and the acknowledged favor of his father, Jacob. It was a complex, blended family with two wives and two concubines. I think that means servant girls, mistresses. All of the children unto one woman. Joseph is immature and he's arrogant. He's unaware of how his dreams and visions from God have further alienated him from his brothers. And so they faked his death at the hands of a wild animal and they sold him into slavery in Egypt, hoping never to hear from him again. How many family secrets were going on in this family? I already told you about what was going on with the grandparents and the great-grandparents. In one day, Joseph lost his parents, his siblings, his culture, his food, his language, his freedom, and all his hopes and dreams. Gone in one day at the hands of his jealous brothers. And then he gets to Egypt and serves as a slave in Potiphar's home, where he's falsely accused of rape and thrown into prison. He nearly got released, but then he was forgotten again. In total, somewhere between 10 and 13 years is how long Joseph was in prison for. So he got to the age of 30, probably decided, you know, his life was a waste and a betrayal. I mean, if anybody would be entitled to think this was a waste and I'm full of bitterness and rage, if anybody would be entitled to feel bad about what has been done to him, it's Joseph. If anybody's going to carry baggage and a grudge, it's Joseph. Over a decade in prison, and yet it says Joseph remained faithful to God. The Bible described him as walking with God. And then a miracle happened, and overnight, through the interpretation of the dream, he was pulled out of prison and made into the second most powerful person in Egypt, overseeing all of the, uh, the, the food preparation and rationing through a famine. And of course, at the end of the story, his brothers came to him, not knowing who he was, having experienced the famine for themselves, and asked him for help, and they didn't recognize him. And we can, I'll just read you a few verses from Genesis 45. So after Joseph had tested them, to make sure that they were who they were and to see if their character had changed at all, if they'd grown up. He says this in Genesis 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants and he cried out, make everyone leave my presence. 
so that no one was Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence and would be with no help. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they'd done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. What a remarkable friend. I have a friend who decided, who said, I've just decided that whatever happened in any situation, in any circumstance, whoever did or said anything to me, I was just going to be the most mature person in the room. I'm just going to try and be the most mature person in the room. I'm still trying to do that and not managing it very well. I mean, talk about emotional maturity. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves. I mean, they're like, this is like, for them, this is like someone come back from the dead or something, you know? For two years now, there's been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and save your lives by great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household. Now hurry back to my brothers and tell them what's going on. And the story ends that the father comes down and the whole family are reunited and blessed and accepted in the, in this land where they're given up to live. See, Joseph continued to walk with God throughout his life and made a choice to partner with God to bring blessing not only to his family but to the whole of Egypt. How did he do that? Four things that he did. He had a profound sense of the bigness of God. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. God sent me here. It wasn't you who sent me. God sent me. He saw the bigger picture of his life. He saw God's hand was on him. He saw how God could work through the pain and the hurt and use it for a greater good. And guys, whatever happens, whatever you've been, whatever you feel like you've been carrying around, let's not lose sight of God and his ability to work in greater ways. And he is bigger than everything. And Joseph knew that. Number two, he admitted honestly the sadnesses and losses of his family. It says he cried so loudly that everybody could hear. I mean, that's proper grief. He wasn't covering it up or shoving it under the carpet or pretending that there wasn't real pain there. He knew that. He was real about his emotions, and that's so important. A number of people I've spoken to, when they're feeling something and they don't know how to bring it to God, say, you know what? Go and go somewhere away from people and just talk to God. He's big enough. He can save you. I'd rather you just came to a monk but if you really need to, you can do that as well. But God's big enough. He can tell him anything. Some people are so afraid to kind of speak out what they're feeling. Sometimes they just don't know how to do it. Joseph was not afraid to do that. Honestly admit what's going on. Honestly how he's feeling. What's going on. Number three, Joseph rewrote his life according to God's will. He was aware of his pain. Also, wasn't denying it. He opened the door to a different future. He kind of rewrote his future with God. And we can do the same. We don't have to be defined by anything. By our own history, by our by our own pain. But God's story can change our lives. And if I can find out how big God is, 